Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christy Getting His Saturdays. Once again, we have the pleasure of having Pastor Mark Downey to continue our discussion of his latest four-part sermon entitled Dissident Racism. The original sermons may be read or heard in their entirety at Mark's Kinsman Redeemer website. We will post the appropriate links with this podcast. We had some technical challenges when Mark was with us last week, and I had hoped not to suffer them again here, and now we had even more technical challenges getting this program started. Last week, we abbreviated the program a little earlier than expected. We shall take up here where we had left off in spite of all these problems, and here tonight we shall discuss some of the key aspects of the last three segments of Mark's sermons on dissident racism. The scripture reading for part two of Mark's series is from Ezekiel, and we see that today we live in a world with many parallels to the ancient kingdoms of Israel and Judah, because the patterns of idolatry, sin, and apostasy are always the same, no matter how modern we think we have gotten. From Ezekiel, Chapter 22, verses 29 through 31. The people of the land have used oppression and exercised robbery and have vexed the poor and the needy. Yeah, they have oppressed the stranger wrongfully. And I, meaning God himself, and I sought for a man among them that they should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Therefore have I poured out mine indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. Their own way have I recompensed upon their heads, saith Yahweh God. When we, and that's the end of our quote from Ezekiel, when we do not stand up for the righteousness of our God, we shall indeed be punished along with the wicked. And with this, we will introduce Pastor Mark Downey. Hello, Mark. Good evening, Bill. Good evening. Praise Christ. And if I may open with uh, our usual prayer for blessings upon this evening, our Father in heaven, uh, we are once again thankful to convey the racial message of your word. Just as the Protestant Reformation was a dissident voice against the Roman Catholic beast, we pray that thy will be done with your servants in Christian identity to be the dissidents in this day and age against what we hope is the last and final beast, Mystery Babylon, which has made your word of none effect by agitating an apostate world that worships the creature of mongrelization more than your creation of kind after kind. May the words of racism flow from a righteous mouth and the racious meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. Lord, we know that as you look down upon the earth, you are disgusted and angered with the abominations of race mixing. We pray tonight's program may play some small part in your people, Israel, changing their minds 
about the role of race in the Bible. Give us the blessings to say no to your adversaries and ours. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. Well, the, uh, the title of uh, part two here is Dissident Racism Above the Fruited Plain. And uh, I was somewhat, somewhat lamenting um, about the good old days. Um, that particular term, above the fruited plain, is from the song America the Beautiful. And at one time, America was a beautiful nation. Uh, the indigenous people um, had a unity uh, that has since decayed with the uh, influx of alien people. The fruit has become more evil and ugly. And uh, so tonight, I hope we can present our message that will begin a restoration of that beauty that once was this great nation. Uh, we're living in very dangerous times, but also a challenging time, and which is why I chose Ezekiel uh, for the reading of this particular segment. Are there Israelites that can stand in the gap? That's the question. Man, the white man, cannot live on literal bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from out of the mouth of God. And it may be bad news of the Gospels for churchianity when they hear the Christian identity message. We know from the parable, the grains of wheat are Israelites. But I know the blasphemy of those who say they are wheat and are nothing of the kind, but are the synagogue of Christ killers. That's what they really are. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom. But the tares, the weeds, are the children of wickedness. And we read that in Matthew 13. The enemy of the white race has sown multiculturalism in most nations of true Israel. The harvest of these unwanted elements, understood in their proper context, would be considered racist by these same enemies mixing good seed with bad seed in the field. The fruits of the Holy Spirit have been traded in for forbidden fruits, evil fruit that is corrupt and spoiled, having zero nutritional or spiritual value. A genetically modified offspring, or mongrel if you will, will naturally gravitate to social deviance, solidifying their social clout, because both are unnatural life forms 
God will not leave the earth spoiled with aberrations of his creation like Sodom and Gomorrah, nor trashed with a plethora of septic sins. The bride of Christ wears the white of ethnic cleansing prepared for her groom, Christ. Well, well, yeah, you know, I'd like to read real quick from Exodus chapter 23. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in thy land, lest they make thee sin against me. For if thou serve their gods, it will surely be a snare unto thee. And then it says in Deuteronomy chapter 7, speaking of the aliens in the land of Canaan, Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them. Neither shalt thou make marriages with them. Thy daughter thou shalt not give unto his son, nor his daughter shalt thou take unto thy son. For they will turn away thy son from following me, that they may serve other gods. Now, the children of Israel were always to be a separate and holy people, separated from all other peoples, a peculiar people. And the Apostle Peter upholds that in the New Testament in 1 Peter chapter 2. Ancient Israel was a type for the Christian nations of today. We're under the same divine law of God. We're under the same divine mandate now that we are Christians. These Canaanites in the land of ancient Israel were the aliens of the time And now today, those aliens have different skin tones and different names, but they're still aliens, and we still have that mandate to be a separate people. Yet, we see all these other races in our lands, and we see so many white men and women now emulating Negro beasts and these other races. And the scripture warned warned us about this many centuries ago. We might think we're modernized now, but the, the, the circumstances haven't changed at all. Well, I find myself using Exodus 23:33 more and more often uh, because of its simplicity and, and the dynamics. I mean, it just dispels so many arguments that we hear from people that don't seem to think it's a problem of... Um, the rising tide of color and and the inundation of uh, illegal immigration into this country. I mean, really, what part of um, they shall not dwell in thy land don't they understand? <laughs> uh, well, well, absolutely. And I, I've heard universalists in Christian identity say, oh, that only means the Canaanites. When Yahweh commanded the children of Israel to be a separate people, And in the New Testament, where the children of Israel are urged to be a peculiar people and a separate nation, a holy nation. The word holy means separated and dedicated to the purposes of God. We still have that mandate, as we see in 1 Peter chapter 2. So it doesn't matter that the aliens are of a different variety today. We're still to be a separate and peculiar people, meaning that while the children of Israel of the Old Testament were to be separate from the aliens of their time, which were the Canaanites and the Hittites and all these 
the Kenites and the Rephaim. Today, we're still to be separate, but the aliens just happen to have different names. The mandate is still there to be a peculiar people. We can't be a peculiar people mixed with any other races. Yes, that, that really is a disingenuous argument that that was only meant for that time. Um, I've heard that for a number of things that people just simply don't like or want to scoff at. Uh, I mean, if we were to apply that to uh, everything, there there would be no biblical principles for each generation to live by. <laughs> it's Absolutely. that simple. The, the principles are in the law. It doesn't say thou shalt be a separate people from the Canaanites and thou shalt be peculiar from the Canaanites only. It says thou shalt be peculiar and separate, period. And that's really the, the spirit of apostasy is they'll they'll use an excuse like that to fall away from the original intent. Or, or to come to to. um to to find approval in a scripture of, of their joining themselves to the world today. Well, and, and there's another song besides America the Beautiful that I'd like to bring up. And it was called What a Wonderful World, sung by the Negro Louis Armstrong in 1967. And it's turned out to be not so wonderful almost 50 years later. I read the uh, article in Wikipedia and paints its intentions as, quote, an antidote for the increasingly racially and politically charged climate of everyday life in the United States. The song also has a hopeful, optimistic tone with regard to the future, with references to babies being born into the world and having much to look forward to, end quote. Well, the, the song was written by two Jews. One stanza seems to have gone in just the opposite direction they dreamed of. It goes like this. The colors of the rainbow, so pretty in the sky, are also on the faces of people going by. I see friends shaking hands saying, how do you do? They're really saying, I love you. Well, uh, I have my own 2015 version, which goes something like this. The colors of the rainbow, so pretty in the sky, are also on the faggot flags marching by. I see bleeding hearts high-fiving say, how you doing, dude, when they're really saying, it's my right to be crude. Well, well it's all relative, Mark. I mean... It, it is a wonderful world if, you, if, if you're a devil, if you're a Jew or a Negro, it's a wonderful world. If you're a Negro, it's a wonderful world right now. You get yourself a blonde girl and, and, and you basically have your pick of them. If you don't feel like working, you get EBT cards. If you feel like working, you get hiring preferences. It's a wonderful world for a Negro. Uh, it, it's a wonderful world for a parasite feeding on a dead carcass. And I can't think of a better analogy than that for the Jew, which puts all of the uh, coloreds under their umbrella. They're the people in in the driver's seat. And, and, and uh, if you turn down for a loan, you scream racist and blame it on white people. 
that's all they have to do. And uh, and that's one of my reasons for um, generating this idea of dissident racism is that it's time to stand in the gap, to stand up and say, this is wrong or this is not biblical. If we're going to be Christians, if we don't want to see our country going down the toilet, we have to stand in the gap. There's been several uh, identity Christian scholars that have convincingly debunked one of the most popular but unbiblical and nonsensical cliches that has contaminated the church. Deals with Nicodemus, that not only misunderstood Jesus, but so-called born-again Judeo-Christians who un- misunderstand John 3.3. 3. That is, quote, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, end quote. Well, the King James is a poor translation, as you well know, and is better understood in its racial import from the original manuscripts to mean begotten from above. The word again is not in the text. A second birth is not suggested figuratively in the text, nor does it imply a future tense. A Schofield margin note implies the regeneration of any biped is merely having faith in Christ crucified and then becoming, quote, a partaker of the divine nature of Christ himself, end quote, whatever absurdity that may mean. However, the difference between the racially pure Adamite and the mongrel is that we have the breath of life in Genesis 2-7. That is the spirit of God. The mongrel does not have God's spirit and consequently is impossible for him to spiritually discern the truth of God's word. That's why when people tell me I should listen to that Negro Pastor Manning or the Jew clown Brother Nathaniel, I'm compelled to tell them that there is nothing they have to say that I need to hear. There will always be enmity between two disparate seed lines because the racial alien was not created by God, was not conceived in the thoughts of God as part of his plan for the ages and is an expendable entity, just like the tares of Matthew 13. And hence, quote, he shall not see the kingdom of God. Now, if you believe all Israel will be saved, Romans eleven twenty six, then you have to believe also that they or we will see the kingdom. The Greek word for born is geneo, it's 1080 in Strong's, and means conceive or beget when used of men and physical birth when used of women. Unless a person is begotten, of the Adamic seed line, according to the original sowing conceived of God, that person will never perceive the kingdom, let alone being in it. When God declared, for thou art a holy people, and you've already mentioned this verse uh, from Deuteronomy 7, 6, says, for thou art a holy people 
to the Lord thy God, and the Lord thy God chose thee to be to him a peculiar people beyond, or it says above in the King James, all nations that are upon the face of the earth, end quote. He was making an exclusive separation of the white race and all other humanoids, for lack of a better term. And not only that, but justifying white supremacy, something that our race is in dire denial of. We are above non-Israelites. But that fortunate station in life can quickly reverse itself with the legitimization of sin. Uh, The latter, the humanoids, were never meant to be understood as part of God's creation of kind after kind, and therefore could not be good or conceived of in the mind of man. God said, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways. Isaiah 55, 8. God hath from the beginning chosen you, meaning Israel, to salvation. 2 Thessalonians 2.13. This idea of universalism squarely comes from the wickedness of man's imagination, which conceives of an inclusive small g God not found in the Bible, and hence the mantra of God loves everybody. It is man playing God deciding who is begotten from above, meaning heaven, the abode of God, and when man chooses God. This sort of outrageous insubordination deserves nothing short of dissident racism from God's chosen people. And this can never be the Jews because they're the world's greatest promoters of multicultural diversity in in white societies through the adulteration of the word of God. It is the leaven of the Pharisees. So we must make clear distinctions between 10,000 manuscripts comprising the word of God written by white men, the tares, excuse me, the wheat, and the Masoretic translations written by the Jewish rabbis. Those are the tares which constitute the majority of Bibles, unfortunately, in circulation today. We can find the truth by going to the root, meaning the root meaning of words, and whether they were recorded in the manuscripts and rendered honestly, retaining the inspiration from God. If the racism is missing or adulterated, then you can surmise that an evil person has planted something that does not belong there. Obviously, the admonition not to add or diminish from the word found in both the Old and New Testament was rejected with contempt by these rabbis. In the culture war of the 1960s, uh, much of the Bolshevik agitation such as civil rights, abortion, drugs, immorality, decadent art and music, was in the name of free speech. But now, now that these cultural Marxists have actually penetrated the upper echelons of government, 
they now elect to silence Christian voices who are exercising their free speech also, especially in the increasing realm of non-white violence directed against white people, the rampant consumption of drugs, legal and illegal, and the putrefaction of the moral climate. In a democracy, otherwise known as mobocracy, the majority rules and the minority dissents. However, democracy is merely a stepping stone for oligarchies and kleptocracies and communist tyranny that precludes Christianity and the white race, and thus the dissent of a white minority. It's not that we're still a majority demographically in the United States, but that we are racially disenfranchised from the body politic. I don't restrict that to voting for the lesser of two evils, but to exercise our God-given inalienable rights without fear of intimidation or retaliation. Some white people are routinely fired from their jobs because they say something politically incorrect. And sometimes they're ordered to sensitivity training to kowtow to the actors of fictional persecutions. Since the alleged and strange shooting up of a Negro church by a white guy in Charleston, South Carolina, it seems as if Pandora's box has been opened and all the demons of censorship have been unleashed to eradicate anything resembling white history. If people can't see that our heritage is being erased from the national consciousness, then they must be blind and deaf. And what, pray tell, is a black church? There is no black ecclesia. There are no black called out ones. Well, well, the bottom line is that whites are going to be beaten up by the political system until they realize that they have no political solution. The enemies of our race have long wanted to tyrannize us, to rule over us, and to remove all of our perceived freedoms. That is always their agenda. It is always, it, it has always been their agenda. They are resilient and constant, waiting for opportunities where they can legitimately seize more and more of our freedoms and, 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 and liberties. And they, that they seek to do it legitimately because first, even though it takes a long time, most people are blind to the devils behind the curtain and, 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 and they blame it on liberalism. If we could only convince these people that, that they shouldn't be liberals, we could have freedom again. That's never going to work. Whites are going to be beaten by the political system until they realize that they have no political solution. These enemies of our people and our God will always be enemies of our people and our God. And the only solution to our woes is Christ and to come out from the political systems of man and recognize that Christ is king. That's the command. Come out of the system. Um, if I could put 
this message in context on the calendar. I wrote this in July, so it's been about three or four months. And in that time, uh, since uh, the Charleston incident, there, there's been many more shootings. Uh, but it seems like the first thing on their agenda culturally was the Confederate flag. That, that seemed to be the first thing on their list. And as if the flag itself pulled the trigger and allegedly shot up all those Negroes. Well, cliches then abounded to bring down the flag as if it were the Berlin Wall or something. Well, both are symbolic, but hardly identical. And I've read a lot of arguments for the stars and bars and the denial that it has anything to do with race or slavery in the context of the Civil War or contemporary applications. But um, since July, I've been displaying the battle flag in my own home on the front yard, not as a sentimental Southern thing, but symbolic of my racism and descent to the new Berlin walls built by the Bolsheviks as a social construct in American political correctness. I say to them, bring down the altars of Baal. And, and that's, um, you know, first let me say that what well, we love our Confederate flag, even though I'm a Yankee, right? Melissa and I love our Confederate flag. We love what it stands for. We have a Confederate flag flying in front of our own home and we, we, we've had it for over a year now flying in front of our own home. But what good is defending the flag when one does not defend its values? Many defenders of the Confederate flag are found worshiping Negroes and Jews every night in front of their television sets. There's form and there's substance. Jesus Christ considered the Pharisees to be hypocrites because they kept all of the outward appearances and ornaments of the kingdom of Yahweh in the rituals and the customs of the temple. But they had no regard for the real substance of the kingdom, the law of God and the people of God, which are necessary to the healthy function of the kingdom of God. And they neglected the prophecies in the word of Yahweh pertaining to Yahshua Christ himself. So the Pharisees retained the form of the kingdom, but they neglected the substance. So it is with the Confederate flag that even many defenders of the flag are defending the form of Dixie and they neglect the substance of what Dixie was supposed to be. And aside from that, aside from that problem, any symbols which whites attempt to employ in order to identify other like-minded whites is going to be demonized by the Jewish-controlled media because the biggest anathema to the Jew after Christian identity is white solidarity of any sort. It's not really about the flag. It's really about whites displaying solidarity in a manner which may attract other whites to the cause and allow like-minded, like-minded whites to form associations. Right now, 
especially in the South, like-minded whites can identify each other with that Confederate flag. It could be a swastika. It could be a lot of symbols. Any symbol that whites try to rally behind is going to be demonized by the Jews. I believe you're absolutely correct. Um, uh, anything that, that starts gaining momentum, and, and we talk about um, our movement, uh, so-called, um, where um, their, their flagship is uh, the the World War II uh, fables, and uh, that's the last thing they want to happen. They learned their lesson how fast the German people could um, uh, cling to an idea and translate it into action. And uh, under Hitler, uh, the German nation quickly... Uh, got back on its feet and began understanding the Jewish problem. I fly the Confederate flag. It, it, it kind of reminds me of this cartoon. I think it was from like around the eighties, circa late eighties, early nineties. And it was an eagle swooping down on a, a little old mouse, but the mouse was flipping the bird at the bird. <laughs> and it, it takes guts. You know, that, that little mouse is kind of like us today, um, with the enemy swooping down on us and with all these, um, heavy handed, uh, types of hate crime legislation, anything that's politically incorrect. But again, it's a matter of, people standing their ground and standing in the gap and uh, uh, saying, no, uh, we're not going to take this. You can't take away our flag and you can't tell us what it stands for is a symbol of that. Don't tell us, you know, don't let that Pastor Manning or Brother Nathaniel tell us what's what. Because we can figure it out for ourselves. <laughs> in fact, according to... Uh, a major polls, an overwhelming majority, something like 80% of Americans believe 9-11 was an inside job. What is still kind of murky territory is the number of Jewish actors complicit in 9-11. It's simply astounding how the facts of that terrible day uh, have been suppressed. Uh, just within the last week or so, Jeb Bush, who's running for president, has made a big deal about how his brother kept us safe uh, after 9-11. And Donald Trump uh, uh, objected, saying, well, he was he was the watchman on the wall at, the, at that time. What happened? <laughs> and it's unfortunate. I, I think Donald Trump is, is probably just another shill. He's just more entertaining than others. He, he could have sunk Jeb's boat right then and there by bringing forth the facts of 
and how many Jews were involved in that thing is simply astounding. Well, while Trump, he's in bed with Jews. He's always been in bed with Jews. He's been in bed with Jews all his life. His daughter's married to a Jew. He's no savior. That these white nationalists that look to Donald Trump to be a savior, they're among those Americans who still think that there's a political solution and they're going to be beaten and beaten and beaten and disappointed and disappointed and disappointed until they realize that there is no political solution for our race. So why spend your energy trying? You cannot, the, 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 the people who are candidates in nationwide political elections are funded by the Jews who print the money. Solomon Brothers and, and Goldman Sachs and, and all of these other investment bankers. They're funded by the Jews to print the money. And since we all rely on the printed money of the Jews, none of us are ever going to be able to outspend the Jews to gather enough votes to defeat the Jews. It's that simple. Right. Trump could have warned the American public, but he didn't. He's got some momentum, but he doesn't want too much momentum. Not the kind that you're just talking about. Um, and I don't think anybody gets that rich unless they're rubbing shoulders with, with the Jewish cabal. Well, well of course not. He, he was... Um he inherited his his business, I believe, from his father in the first place. So so he had a head start as a millionaire. He almost went bankrupt and somehow was able to recover through investing in casinos, which is basically a, a Jewish business from their very conception in, in this country. Casinos have always been a Jewish business. So, so I mean, Donald Trump to make it, especially in that business without kowtowing to and, and sleeping with Jews allegorically or literally, it is basically unreal to imagine that he could do that. He, he's, if, if Donald Trump was not a man corruptible, and if Donald Trump was not in bed with Satan, he wouldn't be where he is today. And people have to understand that. I, I used to um, scold white men who watch television by making these smart aleck remarks. And, and, and I, I'd see a few white guys gathered around a television looking at some pretty blonde. And I'd walk up and I'd say, oh, she's a whore. And they'd say, how do you know she's a whore? And I just simply say, because she's on television, because she is on television, I know she's a whore. And they, they would wonder about that. And they just couldn't put two and two together. How do I know Donald Trump is a whore for, for the Jews? Because he's where he is today. He milks the media. <laughs> you know, something that's always stuck in my mind, Bill. Uh, I remember years ago, he was on the David Letterman show. And Letterman was joking to him about how much money he had. And he had a little Freudian slip. He says, no money, Dave, but lots of credit. And that's the key. 
he might not have that much money, but he's got all the credit in the world. And that credit comes from the international banksters. And if he were for, if he were the real deal, he would stand the gap, but he doesn't. Well, well, I believe you said in this paper, and, and you may have gotten to this point already, according to major polls, an overwhelming majority, over 80% of Americans believe 9-11 was an inside job. The, the number uh, of Jewish actors complicit in 9-11 is astounding. But we, yeah, you know, with, with 9-11, that, that's one example that we, we see that the Internet can work as a sort of grassroots news media for at least some issues. And those of us who love the truth should ever more fervently use the tools at our disposal to advance that. But even there, we, we've had a whole lot of distractors in, in the um, 9-11 so-called truth movement who, who come up with these, that these crazy theories, these conspiracies, that they focus on weapons, they focus on, on how that the trade center what was destroyed but they never and and they seek to divert our attention and and they never focus on the who so so even with that we see a lot of people are are being purposely led off in in different directions by Judas goats well and that's something in christian identity that we're not afraid to uh approach is that uh, we identify the bad guys. I'd like to relate a a Bible story out of the the book of Judges, uh, chapter 6, is when Gideon is called of God to destroy the altar of Baal, which his father possessed. Uh, Now, the thinking of Gideon must have been that it wasn't good enough to simply ignore worshiping at that altar, but that he must bring it down and destroy it. Uh, So his dad, Joash, had to answer to the angry townspeople the next day about their adorable idolatry being smashed to smithereens. And they they wanted to kill Gideon and his uh, fellow saboteurs. But Joash quieted the mob and told them not to take matters into their own hands, insisting that this was a contest between uh, the Lord and Baal. And Elijah posed a similar challenge between the small g gods and God. And Gideon's survival after his righteous vandalism of the pagan altars would be an indictment against Baal. God even gave Gideon the confidence before he began his uh, nocturnal commando raid on the altars of Baal and comforted him with these words. Peace be to thee. Fear not. Thou will not die. End quote. When the deed was done, Gideon built another altar and called it the Lord is peace. It was not to serve as a place of sacrifice, but to be a memorial and a witness of the revelation of God, which had been made to Gideon and of proof which he had received that God was peace. In other words, God would not destroy Israel in his wrath. And for the assurance of peace, which he had given to Gideon, was also a confirmation of his announcement that Gideon would conquer the Midianites in the strength of God 
and deliver Israel from its oppressors. This Old Testament story was for our edification should Baal rise again in whatever disguise the Jewish wardrobe department devises. And by the same token, when we raise our standard, which our chosen standard of the day is the battle flag of the Confederacy, it's not reliving the past or a reenactment. It's a symbol of our right as free white men on the soil to be the dissident voices opposed to the idols of Baal. And one of the elements of Baal, by the way, was race mixing. Uh, we are just as opposed to the National Association for the Advancement of Canaanite People, as was Joshua, almost. Uh, he didn't quite finish the job, did he? So the battle is still before us to this day. And it is manifested once again in spiritual warfare between the God of separation and racial purity and the gods of integration and multiculturalism. Let's be clear about one thing. The Canaanites and the Israelites were not the same race. The enemy who calls for bringing down the Confederate flag knows very well that the design is not just an ordinary X. The cross of Christ and the diagonal cross of Jacob Israel, that is St. George's cross of England and St. Andrew's cross of Scotland, respectively, in 1606 merged and became known as the Union Jack. The flag was called Jack out of respect for King James, which name in French is Jacques, in Latin, Jacobus, and in Hebrew, Jacob, which appears to be something more than a mere coincidence in view of our claim to be the literal descendants of Jacob. Likewise, many Scandinavian countries employ the cross design in their national flags. It's not only a geographical thing, considering the common symbolism found in each, and not so surprisingly that the same racial stock is indigenous to each of these Aryan nations. When Jacob Israel blessed the two sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, which Christian identity identifies as Great Britain and America today, he said, let my name be named upon them, Genesis 48, 16. And as he did so, his arms were crossed over the two, forming a diagonal cross. The boys would become a great multitude, along with Abraham and Isaac's blessings, carried from generation to generation to God's covenant people, saying, quote, And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing, Genesis 12, 2, otherwise known as the Abrahamic covenant. So the sons of Isaac became Isaac's sons, or Saxons. At this point in time, we can see a fulfillment of prophecy with the children of darkness, directing their enmity against true Christians, the Christian especially with a racial consciousness 
by labeling them racist. This is a word that has been demonized to the point of almost being a leper, having mutated into a contagious flesh-eating virus that will turn you into a puddle of muck. Aside from the war of words, my Webster's Seventh Collegiate Dictionary defines racism as, quote, a belief that race is a primary determinant of human traits and capacities and that racial differences produce an inherent superiority of a particular race, end quote. So it's a belief that race determines who and what we are and that racial differences are just that. That is, we are different. Isn't that what God's telling us? He says, you only have I chosen among all the families of the earth, Amos 3, 2. If there were no difference, then God would have chosen all the families of the earth. Now the change agents want the word racism to mean more than the aforementioned and supplant belief with behavior in reference to the proverbial hate that always goes along with it. That is likewise redefined to mean more than just opposition. Therefore, when they speak of racism and hate, they equate it to some inflammatory headline atrocity like Charleston, which they themselves may have conspired to happen. Well, well, that's absolutely the case. Well, I I like to say that racism is is having a love for the creation of God. And we can't fear that, that that's what Christians, that that's what God's law is meant to do. It is to help us interact as God wants us to with his creation, we being his children. And, and that anti-racism it is a trait of those who wish to destroy the creation of God. And that was the rebellion of the so-called fallen angels in the first place. But we should never be afraid of words. We should never fear being labeled. When the enemies of our God label us with their epithets, it should be an honor to us. Adolf Hitler said, that if a man is not demonized by the Jews, then he has nothing of value. He has done nothing of value for his own people. Christians should not fear what men may do to them or what men may think of them. The Jews always seem to be on the prowl for some incident so that they can use that to demonize whites who would like to defend or maintain their own race. But when the Jews stand up for the Israeli state in Palestine, it's absolutely incredible. Yeah. Um, You know, they've, uh, they've worked this uh, cliche that whenever Anybody says anything politically incorrect regarding race, 
how the automatic response is, oh, don't you know that's hate? And our people have been so inculcated without any kind of follow-up. What the follow-up should be, should be, so? Or so what? And uh, Or that's the way it should be. That's the way it should be. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I mean, people will guard the genetics of their German shepherd. I mean, somebody just says, well, I'm just being a good Christian. Uh, in Ecclesiastes, it says there's a time for love and hate. And uh, we we love God's creation. We hate the things that aren't his creation that are at war with us. So that's, we're perfectly justified in, in both uh, areas of love or hate. And if, if we're neither, we're lukewarm. And if we're lukewarm, uh, that's the kind of stuff that Christ said he'll just spit, spit it out of his mouth like puke. Be hot or cold, but don't be lukewarm. <laughs> well, well, absolutely. What we, you know, hate is good. Hate, hate. What we're taught by this society that they try to inculcate into us that hate is bad. Hate is good. God hates. And, and hate is a mechanism and an emotion which allows us to defend the things we love. There's nothing wrong with hate. I think it's the same thing with, uh, with judging how people have been programmed and brainwashed to come up with a one-liner, judge ye not, lest ye also be judged. But, you know, we everybody judges things every day. <laughs> so it's a rather ridiculous retort. Well, while there are other scriptures that tell us that we must judge, we have to judge. We have to judge between good and evil. It very much is a survival mechanism uh, and shows why our our survival is going downhill is because we haven't been exercising good judgment. <laughs> well, well, the the the, um, the dialogue that, that's been worked up in the Judeo-Christian churches ha- have all been worked up to suit the Judeo half of the equation in Judeo-Christian. None of that dialogue is actually Christian. Right. It's, it's churchianity. Well, well, it's, it's churchianity and churchianity, modern churchianity has been created to suit the, the Jewish masters of the, 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 the current world order. Now, I was speaking earlier of, um, how they uh, capitalize on some inflammatory headline such as Charleston that's a, a supposed big atrocity of some sort, uh, which they themselves may have conspired to happen. And this is a very little known technique that they've used throughout history, um, especially um, uh the northern newspapers during Reconstruction, right after the Civil War, um, they would hire Scallywags, which was a southern race trader who supported the desegregation and was opposed to Christian morals. 
And then there was the carpetbaggers who were northern scoundrels and agitators for profit to commit these heinous acts while impersonating the Ku Klux Klan, which was a guerrilla militia opposed to the draconian occupation of their states after the war, uh, which had become military districts and their homes were violated under the Third Amendment. But most people are unaware of this segment of American history. But after the war, the white man was disenfranchised from voting or holding public office, uh, from owning property or bearing arms. While at the same time, the Negro was given all of these things. And lest I forget, the Confederate battle flag was outlawed at that time. It was a terrible time of white women being raped by blacks, of thievery, of corrupt government and poverty, which is what the Klan objected to ferociously and was succeeding to reclaim their free speech for what was right. The Klan actually were veterans of the Confederacy and found themselves between a rock and a hard place. On one front, they were dealing with criminals, carpetbaggers, and Negroes gone feral in their efforts to bring law and order back to their communities. Whereas on the other front, they were trying to resolve the issue of impersonators committing all kinds of atrocities in their name. When the terrorism against the South subsided because of the efforts of the Klan, the Northern press, mostly a political arm of abolitionists, began sensationalizing and exaggerating either fictional events or factual ones staged by the papers themselves. It was a very violent time in America because of Jewish greed and the love of personal gain. During Reconstruction, there were an estimated 50,000 casualties as the Klan grew in ranks to 400,000 members. The feds found themselves powerless to stop the rise of the South once again. And so President Grant arbitrated an agreement with General Nathan Bedford Forrest to restore full citizenship rights to white Southerners and that they could govern themselves if the Klan would disband. And in 1870, they ceased to exist, at least for that era. Well, we've entered a new era in which the white man throughout the fruited plain is again being demonized and maligned by the descendants or heirs of abolition which has now become a major racket and shakedown industry. Those Judaized Christians who worship the Jew and Negro Baals that they leave unmolested, except for being in the wrong place at the wrong time when the heathens rage, and wonder what did they do to provoke the savage into a violent animal? Well, these days it doesn't take much for the mob to just explode. Uh, seeking white punching bags. Or perhaps 
That's the only thing that will awaken a bleeding heart liberal Caucasian. Might as well throw a retarded kosher conservative in there as well. Hmm. The Baal priest I accidentally clicked a button and lost my place. Well, well the Baal priests are potter and, and the few pew sitters, as you say, uh, are their clay. And, and we should not ignore the last part of, of verse 17 of Revelation 12 either, as you have written, which says, and he, the dragon, stood upon the sand of the sea. Not now you have written that the, that the sea it is the law of the seas making a beachhead for their admiralty jurisdiction, what which is Talmudic case law, but replacing God's law as the law of the land. Can you hear the foundations of the godless global economy cracking and snapping? It is dependent upon the mercantile commerce of Babylon, shipping cargoes via the oceans, no ships to transport goods, no riches. And, and that is true to, to a great degree. That is one an analogy that works well in that context. And I, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't scoff at it for sure. And in another context, the dragon also stands upon the sea of alien peoples, as the sea was often also used as an allegory to describe the collective mass of the world's peoples. So perhaps the analogy has a double meaning. The dragon brings those peoples in a flood upon the seat of the woman, as we're told in Revelation chapter 12. So, so we have the, um, the, the globalist mercantile system reliant on the seas, but we also have the sea of the world's peoples. And in Revelation chapter 20, I believe, we have a promise, or, or maybe perhaps it's the beginning of chapter 21, Christians have a promise that the sea will be no more at some point in the future. Well, um, that is what has crept in unawares. If you go into any courtroom in America today and see an American flag with gold fringe, that's what's called a an admiralty jurisdiction, otherwise known as maritime law. And what it is basically is um, the, the captain of a ship on the high seas is the law. Uh, in the seas, the captain of a ship can say or do anything he wants. Uh, and, and that is what has overcome the law of the land. We now have the law of the sea in the land and the man on the soil, uh, which is your white Christian American, uh, doesn't have a clue what hit him. And they go into court nowadays and, and try and plead their case according to, even if they don't know it, the new covenant that's written in their heart. And the judge will tell them, don't speak that stuff in my courtroom. And so there has to be a wake-up call that um, we need to just say no. 
And it's as outrageous as uh, the king of Tyre, who exclaimed his kind of haughty attitude in Ezekiel 28, too, in, in the same manner as the merchants of the earth today that are saying, I am a God. I sit in the seat of God in the midst of the seas. And like I just uh, mentioned about the captain of the ship in the high seas, uh, they really are the black-robed devils today. And they will be a part of that group that is going down in one hour. In Revelation 18, uh, we read, in, in one hour such wealth is made desolate. In this way also, every ship navigator, everyone traveling in a ship to places and the ship captains and everyone who does business at sea stood from a distance and cried when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, what city is like unto this great city? And they cast dust on their heads and cried, weeping and mourning, saying, how terrible, how terrible it is for the great city where all who had ships at sea became rich from her wealth because it has been destroyed in a single hour. Rejoice over her fate, O heaven and saints and ambassadors and prophets, for God has passed the judgment of your condemnation of her. Then one powerful angel picked up a stone like a huge millstone, threw it into the sea and said, With this kind of sudden violent force, Babylon, the great city, will be thrown down and it will never be found again. Revelation 18, 17 through 21. What I get from that is we must condemn Babylon in no uncertain terms and the destruction of her international banking will be certain. Well, well, that same attitude is expressed in in um in Revelation chapter eighteen verse seven, but the paradigm is different. What where the kings of the ancient world did imagine themselves to be gods, and and, and were often punished for that, were often reproached for that by Yahweh God. Today we have a people who imagine themselves married to Christ, when in fact. They are actually the whore joined to the beast of mystery Babylon. And Revelation 18 portrays the same attitude in that context where it says of that whore, for she saith in her heart, I sit a queen and am no widow and shall see no sorrow. And and that describes the... Um, Judeo-Christian mindset of the true children of Israel today. Well, I have to believe that haughtiness, uh, before haughtiness comes destruction, uh, um, pride before a fall. <laughs> That's what my Bible says anyway. Well, and, well uh, absolutely. It's the same pattern of, of sin and apostasy and, and judgment from God over and over again that we've suffered because we don't learn from history. 
it's in that same chapter, uh, Revelation 18, that says, come out of her, my people, uh, so that you don't uh, become afflicted with her plagues or partake of her sins. And uh, and that's that's the uh, the conglomerate forces at work today that really do want to rule the entire world. But it, it's without Christ. It's well, well, those people that those people in Babylon Falls that join themselves to the side of God and, and and finally realize that they have to stand up for what is right and hear that call to come out of her, my people, those people are, are, are the ones whom Yahweh God will use to judge the beast and, and, and that the, the fallen mystery Babylon where those who don't hear the call and who refuse to come out of her can be likened to those five virgins that had no oil in their lamps and they will be punished along with the beast. Well, the um, God's plan just seems so perfect because th- those would be the perfect candidates to do his will in that regard. They, they will have seen how they had been ripped off for so long and were too blind to see it and now realize the evil um, that they're facing and knowing that it has to be destroyed. Um. I mentioned I um, I wrote this back in July, and um, the uh, the governor of South Carolina, who I found out is a half breed female, Nikki Haley, and I thought she at first was an Indian, but I heard later on it was an Indian from India, not a Cherokee type. Right. No, she, she her parents immigrated from. India, that they're Sikh Indian. She's basically an elephant nigger or, or a chutney nigger. Yeah. <laughs> she, she has no real care for or connection to Southern heritage. And, and whites should not even imagine that she should. Well, on July 10th, that should be a date that lives in infamy, uh, as Roosevelt used that word. When she signed a decree to take away the heritage of our people, ceremonially removed the Confederate battle flag from the state capitol. And the Kenyan dictator in the Rainbow House in Washington, District of Criminals, said it was, quote, a signal of goodwill and healing and a meaningful step towards a better future, end quote. Now, evidently, more steps will be forthcoming. I just happened upon a Negro student, uh, William Ray, 20 years old. He's president of the Black Student Alliance at Wake Forest University in North Carolina. Um. I thought I would quote him because he seems to be so typical of your affirmative action uh, college student these days. He said, America was built on the backs of racism and racism is a system that needs to be deconstructed. 
The Confederate flag coming down is historic, of course, but it's a piece in a billion piece puzzle, end quote. Well, maybe he should start writing a list for the steps needed to deconstruct a billion bits of racism. In fact, that's kind of encouraging if there's that many. Perhaps pieces of racism that don't even exist yet, like the perpetual reparations for descendants of the Holocaust. They could milk that cash cow forever, as long as there's white taxpayers to foot the bill and are pacified. But remember this, the flag's removal is predicated on a fishy black church shooting by an alleged white kid, and there's been no trial and no conviction other than the controlled Jews media. Real American, huh? Guilty before proven innocent? Well, well that, that let me comment on, on that billion-piece puzzle that this um, that this supposed college student who, who's really a monkey with that, that might be able to read. The, the, um, uh, okay, the billion-piece puzzle to a black, I'll call him a black for, for the um, sake of polity, the billion-piece puzzle this, that this black refers to, this, that this organized racism that this black refers to, is really white law. If you can get a dictionary, and, and I have an example of one dictionary that does this at Christagenia. I don't remember where, but it's posted somewhere. If you can get a dictionary from the 60s or 70s and look up the word man, you will see that man colloquially at that time came to mean white society or white people. And when niggers say, here comes the man, they mean here comes the police who are a, a um, an entity that's put in place by white society and white people and, and laws created by whites that the niggers see as oppression. Because if you try to prevent uh, a Negro, if you try to prevent a Negro from stealing your property, the Negro feels he's being oppressed. If you try to prevent the Negro from raping your daughter, the Negro feels that he's being oppressed. The real system of racism that this nigger says needs to be deconstructed is white law and white society altogether. Because the only law that the Negro understands is the law of the jungle. Right. They hate white law. We see that every time a black criminal gets shot now. And and the Marxist Jewish media encourages the black not to protest against um, the white society and laws, but to act their own as their own natural selves, because naturally they hate white society and white laws. They have a natural hatred for those things, which our God has written onto our hearts. 
and they can't possibly have the law in their hearts. The only law they have in their hearts is the law of the jungle. And if you don't let the nigger rape your daughter, steal your money, the nigger will be offended. That's the natural. It, it's like you're, uh, it, it's like a dog, a hungry dog. If you don't give him your food, if he was big enough, he would eat you. Niggers are no different. Well, and I think uh, Psalms 147 uh, might be a wake-up call for some people because it's very exclusionary. It excludes people like that. When the Lord is saying he send out his word, or excuse me, verse 19, Psalms 147, he showeth his word unto Jacob and his statutes and his judgments unto Israel. As far as all these other people or mongrels, he hath not dealt so with any nation. And as for his judgments, they have not known them. How about that? <laughs> they can't know the will of God. And, and basically, in, in the context of that psalm, it, it's really talking about the other white nations. What, where, where these racial aliens aren't really even a factor. They're not even in a the scope. They're absolutely excluded. Right. This is exclusively for Jacob, Israel, otherwise known as the white race. And the white race has, like Christianity demands, the white race, wherever we have established societies, we have established laws that prevent the strong from oppressing, raping, stealing from the weak. What, which is a, a, a Christian compulsion. You can't just rape a woman because she's smaller than you or she's weaker than you. You're going to face a penalty under the, the white man's law, which is really an expression of the law of God. Well, isn't that interesting? The man represents law and order. Absolutely. To, to a nigger, the, the nigger, and, and, and this was colloquial amongst blacks. When, when, when I was a kid growing up in, in New Jersey, in New York, the, when they said the man is coming, they meant the, the police who were put in place by white society. In a black society, there are no police. They didn't have police in their tribal villages back in Africa. That they have no concept of law and police. They were only able to do what they were strong enough to do. And anything they were strong enough to do and get away with, they were able to do. That's the law of the jungle. The law of the strongest beast in the field. Well, there's another uh, fella in the news. Um, I always kind of considered him a somewhat of a kosher conservative. Um, in fact, he ran for president the last time around. His name is Chuck Baldwin. Um, and um, last July, if I can read a quote from him regarding the Confederate flag, he said, the flag needs to be raised, not lowered. 
what we see happening today is an illustration of why the Confederate flag was raised in the first place. That is a response to the tyranny against our God-given liberties. To the spoils of war goes the bias to write the history of that war. And that's what's taught in the communist schools in America today. The people of the South who tried to secede from the Union were branded in school books as traitors, racists, and hate mongers. The Jews, media, and government spokespeople do the same thing today with Christians, conspiracy theorists, military veterans, and so-called hate groups. Uh, Then Paul Baldwin makes the cogent point, quote, to say that southern states did not have the right to secede from the United States is to say that the 13 colonies did not have the right to secede from Great Britain. One cannot be right and the other wrong. If one is right, both are right. How can we celebrate our Declaration of Independence in 1776 and then turn around and condemn the Declaration of Independence of the Confederacy in 1861. Talk about hypocrisy, end quote. To put it in layman's terms, nobody wants to get ripped off. Nobody wants their God-given rights trampled upon. And nobody wants to be lied about. And if I don't want to associate with those who are not of my race, I should be free to separate myself from them, especially if they want to get violent whenever they feel like it. In fact, proximity is the key to bringing the race war to an end. They do not belong here. No racial aliens belongs in the fruited plain. And I would absolutely agree with that. And I would say that Chuck Baldwin is basically correct. He's technically correct. There's no doubt. And all Christians everywhere have an obligation to resist the devil. But the so-called civil war, it really wasn't a civil war at all, right? Became inevitable because the Rothschilds wanted to exploit divisions cultural and economic divisions between the North and South after Alexander, after Andrew Jackson threw the Jewish bankers out of the federal treasury. So, so the, the, the reasons for the civil war are, are a lot deeper than what is apparent. However, the South did have every right to secede, to secede voluntarily without a war under peaceable circumstances, and Chuck Baldwin's analogy to the um, to the Great Declaration Britain. of Independence, it is a very good analogy from that perspective. But from another perspective, knowing that the Jews were behind the instigation to war and the agitation in both the North and the South, If the North had lost the war or if the South had seceded peacefully because the Rothschilds were looking to control both sides. And and if they couldn't control both sides, they were looking to split the nation and control one side because of that. If the North had lost the war or if the South had seceded peacefully, there may have been. Many wars between the states subsequent to 1860, 
at the instigation of those same Jews. So, so I've always been torn about the Civil War because I certainly can sympathize with Dixie and the South had every right to secede peacefully. And I certainly do. And I appreciate that the South was right as it certainly was. But the real culprit was the infernal Jew. And the real question is whether Chuck Baldwin recognizes that. If he does not recognize that, then no matter how right he is about the succession rights of the South, he's still merely symptomatic of the problem. Well, something has to happen in the minds of white men to go to war against their own brother. Uh, A fratricidal war first has to be one in the mind. And and they did the same thing with uh, World War II. You know, nobody wanted to fight Germans. They had German families living in this country for generations. Why would they want to go kill their uh, fellow uh, nationals? It it was uh, a demonization uh, of the Germans and and what Hitler was doing, which was probably uh, uh, sprinkled with a lot of untruths. Uh, well, well, the same process occurred. To to war. The, the same process occurred in the North, Mark. In in the North, as early as the the, the late eighteen thirties, the um the the well, not all of them, but certain so-called abolitionists in the North were were agitating in the Christian churches and demonizing Southerners. Even though only 3% of Southerners owned slaves, all Southerners were being demonized for slavery. And it was basically the same propaganda that went on in, in the United States in the 20th century against the Germans. It's the same. We fall for it over and over and over again. What we should never go to war against our white brother. That, that, that's absolutely contrary to the gospel of Christ. That the idea of, um, slavery in, in scripture, slavery was treated as a practical reality. Now we've abolished slavery in this country so that we could all be slaves. And, and we don't even know it. We don't even understand that that this Jewish capitalism, which has created these international corporations, hold us all enslaved to this day. We don't even understand that. Yeah, we could do a whole show on slavery um, because there's just so much disinformation out there about it. Well, well, maybe someday we will. But but it's the the um the, my my point is I, I sympathize I sympathize with the South for standing against tyranny. They were absolutely right. But on the other hand, I understand that the Jews were behind the instigation and agitation of war on both sides, North and South. And if they had succeeded in splitting the nation, there would have been many wars. There would have been many wars just like there have been what with the English and the French or with the French and the Germans or with the English and the Germans. We would have had that same situation in a balkanized America where one side is always being manipulated into war against the other side by the same Jew. So so it's, it's a two-edged sword, like everything else. Until our people realize 
that, that they should obey the gospel of Christ and understand how Christ himself had identified the Jew, we're going to have this problem. And we have no political solution to it. Well, I think the Jews had their think tanks before that term was ever uh, devised uh, to do just that. Uh, if it's not one war, it's something else. I mean, they're very versatile in fomenting uh, conflict and chaos. Well, well people think that, that, that communism became a, um, a threat. The, the average American doesn't conceive that communism was a threat to America before the 1950s, before the Korean War. But Karl Marx was corresponding with Abraham Lincoln. And so communism was a threat to America in 1861. And even before that. Well, I just did a sermon on uh, what does harvest mean in the Bible. And I found a quote by some Jew. I forget his name, but it's it's fairly well known. And it is war is the Jews harvest. They got their harvest. We got our harvest. I'd like to make a further comment about the stars and bars, though. Uh the Confederate flag is somewhat now our standard to rally the troops against enemy combatants whose families have overextended their stay and must leave America or die. That's just how I feel. They can call it whatever the pejorative they wish, but the truth remains on our side if we fight for it. The Bible likens these strangers with their strange gods, not as people, but as worms that devour the land. They are, after all, God's judgment against us for our sins of miscegenation, race mixing, desegregation, multicultural diversity, ad nauseum. The white race will be restored. Quote, the threshing floors will be full of wheat and the vats will overflow with new wine and olive oil. And I will restore to you the years that the locust hath eaten, the canker worm and the caterpillar and the palmer worm, my great army, which I sent among you. Once again, ye shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the Lord your God who does these miracles for you. And my people will never again be put to shame. Amen. Joel 2, 24. That, that is the only way, the only way to see non-whites from a scriptural viewpoint is through the lens, and, and this is one example in scripture, there are other examples, it is through the lens of Joel 2, 24 through 2, 26. The non-whites are indeed the cankerworm, the caterpillars, the pommel worms, and the locusts, which are sent among us for our punishment for our sin. When one of your children marries a cankerworm or a caterpillar or a pommel worm, you shouldn't see that as a marriage. You should see that as a punishment from God. Your child has been consumed with one of those parasites which were sent among us to punish us for our sin 
they should never be seen as equals, as possible Christians. You, you can't take the, the devil and make a Christian out of him. You can't, if God sends a plague upon you, you can't convert the plague to Christ. The plague is in the hands of God for your punishment. There's no other way to characterize Don White's in scripture than through Joel 2.24 through 26. You know, Bill, it just doesn't get any more insane than people being convinced that it's a blessing. <laughs> but uh, that's the, the strength of the propaganda. Uh, the, the word of that, God, however. I'm sorry. People believe that. But because they had no love for the truth, so Yahweh God sent them a strong delusion. And these Judeo church Christian churches are the vehicle through which the delusion is spread. It, it, it really is cause and effect. Deuteronomy 28 clearly specifies blessings and curses. And um, the Everything having to well, do with says, race. I'm sorry. So it says. I, I'm sorry. I, I'm. I'm trying to add to what you just said, and I'm cutting you off. Sure. Go ahead. The Deuteronomy 28 gives blessings and curses, and one of the curses is that strangers will take your sons and your daughters, and you won't be able to do a thing about it. So, it's staring them right in the face, and, and that's that's being in contempt. Of God, isn't it? Absolutely. And and when you're in contempt of God, you you bet you're begging for judgment. And and when that judgment comes to you, if your daughter marries an alien or or something like that happens, it, it's not necessarily a punishment against your daughter alone. It's certainly not. And it's not even necessarily a punishment aimed at you. The punishment is it is a punishment of the entire community. It's a punishment of the entire nation for their sin. Right. It's like a cancer on a nation. Well, I'd like to say there's there's nothing in this life that says we cannot secede from the bondage of those who hate us and our Messiah, who they would not have him rule over the earth. Uh, that. Scripture reading in Ezekiel is what we would call somewhat of a drama queen, oversimplifying the need for white men to repair the social breach of law and order. Somewhat of an exaggeration because there were good men in Jerusalem like Jeremiah, but overstatement was somewhat of a prophetic method or tool of dramatizing a dangerous situation. And inevitably, doom is the next step after a nation in rebellion loses its reason for being and ignores its commission from God. Thus, the men of true Israel today are not so much drama queens as they are kings and priests of the Most High and are compelled to serve us in the means of dissident racism to elevate the racial consciousness and bring down the nobles of mammon. We must bring down, once again, the altars of Baal, uh, whose God is gain and whose only moral law is license. And steps can either go up or they can go down. 
cultural Marxists think they're riding high on overdrive, but they're delusional fools and their followers. Because as you said, if they believe a lie, if they hate the truth, they'll be sent delusion. And righteousness alone is the only source of our national strength. They can't keep us from bringing down the idols of our heart. Racism is a belief. And if you believe in God, then believe his word pertaining to the identity of an exclusive covenant people and what our responsibilities are in this world. The churches have completely obliterated God's plan for the ages, or so they think and believe. We are racist in respect to intercession, standing in the gap created by the sins of a nation that God is about to destroy. Can you see this? The the kingdom of heaven has been suffering violence and the violent have been seizing it by force. To secede from the kingdom of darkness is to intercede in behalf of true Israel from the wrath of God. Moses, for example, was a dissident racist. Quote, therefore, he said that he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them, meaning Israel. You know, the enemy is desperate right now and going for broke. When the prosecutor's office in Flathead County, Montana, and I, I read this in your uh, forum on Christagenia, uh, was arguing that speech that exposes Jews or other religious, racial, and other groups, quote, to hatred, contempt, ridicule, degradation, or disgrace, end quote, is criminally punishable unless it consists of true factual statements. Well, do you really think they care about true facts? <laughs> they certainly think they are superior to the concept of free speech, whether it's the First Amendment or Titus 2, 7, and 8, quote, concerning all things, present yourself as a model of good works, teaching without corruption, Reverence, sound speech that cannot be condemned so that the adversary may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say about you. Hell yes, we're opposing Jews and exposing them. Christian identity is compelled to explain why Jews are not the Israelite people of the Bible. A great fraud has been perpetrated against mankind, and as a result, it is costing us our freedoms. Martin Luther wrote the Jews and their lies. We too must expose the same kind of chicanery with the only weapon at our disposal, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Never, let us never underestimate the power of the living Word. It goes hand in hand with the logic of a literal sword that Christ commanded his disciples to buy. For the kingdom of God isn't just talk, but also power. 1 Corinthians 4.20 Sound speech, like our presentation tonight, is protected speech by God himself. 
And I will not waive, I will not surrender my right of dissident racism. Well, well, if we do that, then we surrender our love for God and and our willingness to defend our kindred and and our race and and our our faith. That the um the apostles and the martyrs of Christ were not killed because they were preaching peace, love, and joy. If they were preaching peace, love, and joy in in Rome, where homosexuality was rife and all kinds of, of sexual um, license what was what was quite popular preaching peace love and joy the apostles would have been pretty popular they were killed because they were exposing the nature of the devils who killed Christ and they were beckoning men to depart from the ways of the immoral society which was being promoted by those same devils. That's why they were killed for their testimony in Christ. Now, yet you um, have, have just said that Christian identity is compelled to explain why Jews are not the Israelite people of the Bible, and they certainly are not. Jews are basically the world's oldest crime ring, and they absconded with the nation of Judea a hundred years or better before the time of Christ, by the time of Herod the Great, that they were well on their way to taking over, to infiltrating and fully taking over Judea. And by the time of the fall of Jerusalem to the Romans, they had fully secured an identity which was never theirs, which was an identity as Judeans and therefore as Israelites. I, I had recently, um, and, and this is important because Jewry is a crime ring. They have always operated as a crime ring. They have stolen this identity and there are certain white nationalists who concede this identity to them. And when you concede this identity to the Jews, that they are the people of the Old Testament, you are actually giving the world's oldest crime ring license to operate as they do. And when you concede this identity to the Jews, and on the other hand, you try to um, explain to Judeo-Christians why Jews are evil, the Judeo-Christians are never going to join you in your stand against Jewry for this reason. Because as long as Judeo-Christians think that the Jews are the people of the Old Testament, they're going to go to Genesis chapter 12 and read, I will bless you, bless those that bless you and curse those that curse you. And imagining Abraham to be a Jew, the Jews are going to continue to have all the license they need to tyrannize and destroy the white race. Yeah, and there's altogether too many uh, that mindlessly regurgitate these Jewish lies of their identity, uh, which is what Lenin called uh, useful idiots. <laughs> that's, that's just David, about what they are. That, that's David Duke. I'm going <laughs> to pick on him again. I, I don't care. He needs it. Well, start at the top. <laughs> uh, you know, um, Christian identity 
should be compelled to have backbone because we can't afford uh, to be spineless. We will we will never move as a movement. Uh, uh, an invertebrate is spineless like a slug, and they don't move very fast. Um, there are some milk toast personalities in Christian identity, and I cringe every time I hear them saying, we're not racist. But you know, Bill, you are absolutely right earlier when you said racism, if we're called racist, should be a badge of honor. And, no and that is the mentality that we're, we're fighting about from within, even, uh, let alone uh, trying to reach um, our own kind outside of Christian identity. There's no doubt. Racism should be a badge of honor. People should not be afraid to stand up for their race. You know, when, when, um, well, well, ever since the, the, the early 1970s, that's my first, um, cognizant memory of it. These Negroes in New Jersey have, have had these little black, green and red stickers on, on the windows and bumpers of their cars. And it's some sort of African flag or African colors. I don't know that there's never been one African nation. Africa is really, um, really contains an entire assortment of black savage tribes that have been looting and pillaging and raping and, and, and slaughtering each other for thousands of years. So, Black unity is something that the Jewish media has artificially created in the United States alone. But if if this sticker represents black unity, whites that I have ever seen all my life have never reacted negatively to the idea of Negroes having black unity. I've never seen it. But when whites have white unity, even other whites act negatively to it because that's the way they've been trained by the Jewish media. Right. Um, uh, culturally, um, uh, other humanoids uh, have what I call kind of a herd instinct uh, because they they are more animal than uh, a spirit-driven white man. Right. And uh, it's something like the meme uh, when you see a school of fish or a flock of birds that all turn on a dime. Uh, it's because uh, they have this, this hive or herd mentality. Um, along with, all of this um, uh, rioting and looting that's been going on uh, this year. Uh, I remember the um, the rioting going on in Baltimore, and uh, I was watching a video of uh, the black youth uh, rioting in this um, open plaza where the Baltimore Orioles play their baseball games. And... I was I was somewhat struck by the fact that 
they had gotten some white guy down, and this was a big plaza. All of a sudden, the the herd turned on a dime and gravitated, ran to that struggling white guy. It was really quite a an amazing thing to uh, to witness. On a um, on a more anecdotal note, uh, some people may have heard this. It's kind of like what makes you laugh makes you cry, and that's that you can have your cake and eat it too. <laughs> a, a Louisiana man went to a Walmart bakery, uh, the bakery department, and tried to order a cake with a Confederate battle flag on it. However, he was told that all such merchandise had been banned from their all their stores nationwide as the national hysteria, hysteria uh, swept the country over the Sandy Hook-styled shooting in Charleston. There was uh, companies like Sears, uh, Amazon, eBay, uh, lots of big companies that uh, followed suit in this mindless obeisance to political correctness. Well, the next day, same man went back to Walmart and ordered another cake. Only this time, he requested a design for the ISIS uh, battle flag, which is the new Al-Qaeda in the Middle East, which they were more than happy to do. And the man rightfully rubbed Walmart's nose in their own hypocrisy by posting the cake and his receipt on Facebook, well, Walmart has made a disingenuous apology for their mistake, but the Confederate flag hysteria is being festered by the Jews' media and is branching out to what that black student called a billion pieces of the puzzle, in which the heathen rage for more change that their contemporary Prince Hall slave masters demand. Well, well that's, uh, I mean, what would I expect from Walmart? Yeah, you know, they, they don't, that the average Walmart operator probably has no idea that the, the design was the ISIS battle flag, so Walmart was appropriately embarrassed. But, but it shows that they watch for things um, when, when the media triggers them to watch for certain things, and, and other than that, they don't watch. That's what it shows. Well, come to think of it, isn't Walmart one of the leading uh, merchants of the earth? Uh, they bring most of their goods from China, and they're brought here on container ships. Well, well so they're quiet. definitely part of that mystery Babylon that's going to be destroyed. That's right, Dad, about a Revelation 18. Well, I used to joke saying that eventually it will be the United States of Walmart <laughs> and that, uh, you know, there will only be one company that, that rules over everything. If Walmart could do that, they would be more than happy to. I believe a remnant will stand with God's word in the last days. Um they have. So. That's the Elijah ministry. We have that promise of an Elijah ministry. And and if there is no Elijah ministry, God says that he will come and smite the earth with a curse. So, so either he destroys his creation 
days. Well, many people contact me and they, I know it's tough being a Christian identity and not being able to fellowship with like-minded people. And it's somewhat uh, like Elijah. He, he thought he was all alone. And God reassured him, uh, no, there's 7,000 others just like you out there that have the same thinking. And so I believe the remnant is out there, but I think it may be for our own divine protection that we're spread out so few and far between. Well, well, right. And and let me say something. You know, a lot of people read that prophecy to mean that there are only going to be 7,000 people left comparatively. And, and that's not what it's saying. It says that although the number of the children of Israel are as the sand of the sea, yet a remnant will be saved, meaning that a remnant, the 7,000 men, will be preserved who appreciate and keep the word of God. They're not the only ones that are going to be saved. They're being preserved to appreciate and keep the word of God. In other words, the remnant of the people that haven't gone off into the, the evils of the world, like the rest of the children of Israel, but that doesn't mean that, that they're all going to be destroyed, even though our entire race is screwed up, there will be a comparative figure that maintains the word of God and does not bow the need to bail. Yeah, and <laughs> those people that say, well, that was in ancient times. Well, you know, perhaps uh, that was the, the count at the time of Elijah. But that 7,000 uh, doesn't necessarily pertain to now. Uh it may be far greater numbers than 7,000. Well, well, that's true. Paul used it as an analogy for his own time, that some of those Judeans, those true Israelites amongst the Judeans whom he had care for, would also obey Christ and, and, and not bow the knee to the Edomites. So Paul used that in Romans as an, as an analogy for his own time. We can use it as an analogy for our time, that that Elijah ministry will survive, that Yahweh will preserve that remnant so that when Babylon does call, does fall, there are people here who understand what is going on, who can voice the call to come out from among to come out from among them. Well, Lord Thanks. willing, we will exercise dissonant racism until the last Jure stranger is chased down and thrown out of our land of our fathers that they fought and died for. No doubt. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for joining me. And it was a pleasure to um, to discuss your sermons. I'm sorry we didn't get to uh, parts three and four. It, it always is uh, engaging talking with you, Bill. And uh, if people want to uh, uh, read the remainder, it's in kinsmanredeemer.com. And um, they'll find it there. Well, well, right. I will link all four sermons with this podcast and, and people will be more than welcome to, to, to go hear the entire sermons for themselves or, or at least to read the text. Well, I enjoyed uh, the discussion uh, last week and tonight. Thank you. Praise Christ. Good night. Good night. 
All recording has been completed. 